Good morning. I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. Um, it will be on page 1015 in the Bibles provided. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For, the, for t- to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let me encourage you to have a copy of the scriptures open uh, to that text that was just read for you. Uh, appreciate you reading that. So we are going to be in First Peter. We're continuing on in First Peter in our series and. Uh, find ourselves in chapter 3, uh, second part of that, and uh, looking forward to diving in here. I'm going to pray and ask God's blessing, and then we'll just, we'll just jump in. We have a little bit more content to cover today, so we're going to go right in. Father, thank you that we have the opportunity to look at this text of Scripture. I pray that I would uh, communicate this in a way that is helpful and that is accurate is led by your spirit, God. Uh, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the power of it. We're thankful that um, you have chosen to reveal yourself to us and we and uh, in, in, in reveal what we, sh- what we need for life and godliness. And so as we look at this text, we pray that uh, your spirit would, would remove distractions and um, help us to focus in on what you have for us. Uh, we're all flawed people here, we're all sinners, and we all need your forgiveness and grace, and may this text and this time together be helpful in our spiritual lives. First in Christ's name we do pray, amen. So Peter has been using a theme uh, throughout his, uh, 
uh, letter here. He, he, it's a metaphor, really, in some ways, where he goes back to uh, this idea of a family. And, and we talk about this here whenever I write a church email. Uh, I always uh, begin it with church family, and we, we, we use that metaphor. We talk about it because it's a biblical metaphor of the church as being a family here. And he's going to pick this up, and, that, and, and that's what he's been talking about. Last week we talked about some household code, uh, code stuff and things like this. Of, uh, and, and here uh, he's, he's going to continue this, this uh, theme here. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you just kind of this thesis statement, if you will. It's a little bit longer, and then these will actually serve as the main points for the sermon today here. So uh, this, is, this is, if we're going to break this section down, here's how I would summarize it. We are called to live as a loving family who blesses instead of retaliates, not in fear of others, but in reverence of Christ's holiness. So we are called to live as a loving family who blesses instead of retaliates, not in fear of others, but in reverence of Christ's holiness. That's a mouthful. It's long. I get it. But we're going to unpack that as we go throughout uh, our sermon today, okay? So first of all, uh, we're called to be a loving family. As I told you before, Peter has been discussing this household code, if you will, uh, talking about husbands and wives. We looked at that last week. Uh, two weeks ago, Wayne walked us through a text where he talked about the servants. And, and all of this is he's, he's leaning on, Peter's leaning on this idea of, of what the people of his original audience, what they would have known in their household situation there uh, of these these types of relationships. But more than that, in chapter 2 and verse 5, he talks about how that we as Christians, we're being built up as like a spiritual house, okay? And so this has the idea of, of community and family in it as well. And then verses 8 through 10, he talks about how that we are a, this is of chapter 2, how that we are God's people here. So this whole idea of, of being a family is something that, that God has, has used throughout the scriptures a lot of times to communicate the transformation, what he has given and what he has done for us. So for instance, we read John, the apostle John wrote, he said, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us or has shown to us that we should be called children of God and so we are, is what he says there. And so what he's writing there, what he's saying there. He's saying, listen, we get to be part of God's family here. And so this, this whole notion of us being together here today, and we talked about membership earlier, we had people join here. This is a spiritual family. Now, what we are called to do is we're called to uh, live as a loving family. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? And he's going he's gonna to go through and he's going to explain this here in a few minutes here. But let me just tell you that some people, when I use the metaphor of family, some of the, the, the imagery that comes into your mind right now may be like, listen, I, I don't want my church to be like my family, Okay. Now, maybe some of you have a situation that you grew up in where, where it was a very, very difficult home. And I've talked to people before. They say, you know, we're supposed to relate to God as a loving father, but I don't have any example of that in my life. I have no uh, uh, a situation to lean on. I have no example of that. And so I don't know how to relate to God as a loving father because my earthly father was anything but loving to me. And so if you find yourself here today and maybe you're struggling with this imagery of family, of a loving family or a loving father, can I just say that instead of letting that be a roadblock, and I'm not trying to minimize it when I say that, okay? This is a real thing. 
But instead of that being a roadblock, let this text and let what the Bible teaches about a, a family be what is, it shows you what should have been and show you what God intends to be, okay? So instead of saying, well, I can't relate to God this way, I can't relate to my brothers and sisters this way in Christ because you, you don't know my biological or my adoptive or my family situation. You don't know this at all. And so I can't relate to people like this. Let me just say that this is given the ideal of what God, he redeems, and he makes it so that maybe what our earthly relationships couldn't be like, okay, in a, in a more family situation here. So here, he's talking about our, our spiritual lives that he says that we are in this, he goes back to this inclusive all of you in verse eight there. He says, finally, all of you, he's talked about individual people. He's talked about servants. He's talked about wives. He's talked about husbands. And now he's coming back to all of us. And he says, all of you, and he says, do what? And he gives really five ways of, that we are supposed to have this idea of a family in our uh, congregation here. First of all, is this idea of like-mindedness. He says in verse 8, he says, have unity of mind. And really what he's doing here is he's talking about, he's going to give these five qualities that are really going to be necessary to sustain a community. And in, in like-mindedness is one of those things. Remember Jesus, when he was talking about it, when he was teaching in Mark's gospel, he says, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Of course, he's, he's, he's talking in a different uh, application there, but the, the reality is still the same. He says, if there's a kingdom or a house that is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And so there has to be unity of mind here. And so if we're going to be a congregation, we're going to be a church that is loving towards one another, we're going to have to have, if we're going to be this loving family, there's got to be unity of mind. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we have to always agree on everything? Well, no, that's just impossible. That's impossible. Like, you know, we have so many different interests and things or, 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 or different uh, uh, bents, if you will, that are represented in this room right here. And we have difference of opinion on a whole host of different things, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But on the crucial things and the most important things, we have to be agreed on. We can't be a loving family if we're disagreed on who Jesus Christ is. We can't be a loving family if we disagree on whether or not the Bible is inspired or not. We can't be a loving family if we're going to have a different set of orders that we're going to follow. Like, so I'm going to follow the Bible and you're going to follow something else, or you're going to follow the Bible and I'm going to follow something else. We can't be a loving family. There has to be unity of mind there. There's like-mindedness. I think of like 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you're taking notes, write down 2 Corinthians chapter 13, excuse me, verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of all love and peace will be with you. Over and over again in the New Testament, this theme is going to come up that we have to be of one mind together. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 are another text that will lend support to that. Now, why is this so important? Because this is against this, the, uh, a common theme that we see in our culture and what we want. That's like, I, I want to be my own man. I, I, I don't want to be a yes man. I, I want to I be the master of my own destiny type thing. I want to be individual and there's nothing wrong with our individual giftedness. There's nothing wrong with using our individual talents and abilities for the glory of God. But there is something wrong with when we're only concerned about ourselves. Or we're only thinking about ourselves. 
And so this idea of unity of mind here, this like-mindedness, this is a way that we're going to have a healthy family. I need to move on because we've got a lot of ground to cover today. Not only is there like-mindedness, but then there's that word I mentioned earlier that was in our covenant is this idea of sympathy. Now, what does he mean by sympathy? So if we're going to be this loving family, we are going to endure through trials. Because remember, that's what's going on here. He's saying you're going through difficult situations. You're going through sufferings. Here's how you get through this is through a loving family. And this idea of sympathy here. I think the best way to describe or define sympathy here would be what Romans chapter 12, verse 15 says. And that is, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, I've said this before. I know I've shared this before, but it's been a long time, so I'll say it again. It is easier to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. Okay? It's easy to, when someone goes through a difficult situation, it's easier to say, man, I am so sorry you're going through that. In some ways, because we feel that we're just almost glad it's not us in some ways. But it's harder to rejoice with someone who rejoices because we wish it was us. It's not. But Christian sympathy says, I'm going to feel with, okay? That's what it means. I'm going to feel with you. So if you're celebrating, I'm going to celebrate with you. If you're mourning, I'm going to come alongside and mourn with you. I'm going to feel with what you're feeling. I am going to try to enter into your world a little bit here. It's like what 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26 says, is that when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. And isn't that true? It's like how we injure one part of our body, and it's like all of a sudden that becomes just so prominent, and it affects everything. Uh, you know, I mean, I... So many of you, I'm, I'm sure you've done this. I'm not the only one, and maybe I'm the only klutzy one here, but you stub your toe really bad. I mean, it just, I mean, it's like, and I, I think, I, I, I think the baby toe is the worst one, okay? I, it's, it's up there. So I'm saying no. Is it a big toe for you? Big toe? Okay. All right. So who's team big toe? <laughs> All right. Who's team baby toe? All right. See, I love you all. Okay. So the point is, is that, this, that whatever toe it is you stub, man, I tell you what, it hurts. And then all of a sudden, everything's affected. Everything. You can't walk normally, and it, that's the only thing you can think about. You try to put shoes on, it hurts, and it just reminds you of it. I remember uh, when, I was, uh, when I was young, I was probably about six years old or whatever, and the pastor of our church, he was using some illustration. I have no idea what he was talking about. It's probably what you're going to say in 15 years, too. I don't know what Jeremy was talking about. Here's the illustration. is that He talked about his toe hurting, and I remember him talking about how that he was counting the steps to the doctor in back, and he gave the number. It was like, you know, 3,000, whatever. I can't remember what it was at the time. He says, I counted every step because I just, that's all I could think about. You see, when one part of the body hurts, the rest of us notice, or we should, because we're supposed to help each other out. We're supposed to, to, to bear with one another, and we're supposed to care for one another in this idea of sympathy here. And again, this is, um, this comes in play uh, when when how we interact with one another, okay? Because, so it's one thing to make the application of like, okay, so sympathy, if one's hurting, we're gonna hurt with them. If they're rejoicing, then we're gonna, then we're gonna rejoice with them. That's a good application. Here's another way to apply it though, of sympathy. Is that sympathy also seeks to understand rather than scoring points, okay? So if you're in a disagreement with someone, 
You're having a, 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 you know, a conversation back and forth. This is great with, with, with husbands and wives. This is great with kids and parents. This is great with church members all alike here. Often, when we're in those situations, we're simply trying to be right. Or we're trying to score points, if you will, rather than trying to seek to understand the other person's viewpoint. Let me just encourage you that this is, this is an epidemic in our culture. You cannot see a dialogue in politics where sympathy is even remotely there. You cannot see uh, a, a, an expression or an exchange of ideas with true sympathy much anymore. It's just not there. It's always about waiting for the person to pause just long enough so you can jump back in with your point. You're not even trying to understand. And it's almost like this way. It's like you construct the other person's argument to the worst case possible interpretation of it. And then that's what you attack. This is called, by the way, by the way called a straw man argument, okay? Okay, and so what it is is you take someone's argument and then, and then you, you, you go to the worst possible conclusion of it. You make that be what that person's about and that's what you attack. Rather than trying to understand what someone is trying to say. Now this can be about politics. This can be about theological issues. This can be about anything. If we're going to be a Christian loving family here, we got to first, instead of just trying to score points or trying to win the argument, we got to seek to understand. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to agree with the person. Seeking to understand doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to give up the, and concede that the other person's right. But it is important that you understand truly what they are saying and why they're saying it. Because a lot of times when someone does something or someone says something and we don't understand why, instead of taking time to try to understand where they're coming from on that point, we just think they're crazy and write them off. That's not a loving family. That's not a loving family. And so this is another expression of, 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 of Christian sympathy here is we just seek to understand first. And we seek to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Uh, brotherly love is the next word that he talks about here. This idea of brotherly love. So all of you, we're supposed to have this. None of us are excluded from this. And so this idea of embracing one another as family. I, I think of Hebrews chapter 2 where it talks about that Jesus is not ashamed to be called us brothers. And so what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to show love as brothers, as sisters to one another. This idea of family. This is what God has called us to do. To which you we're called is in this text here. And so we're called to treat one another as brothers and sisters ought to treat each other by, by prioritizing, by looking out for each other. This is he's writing to Christians here. And so as this assembly of Christians, we need to show brotherly love. And so we just had people join the church today. We have more people that are, are in the membership class that are going to be joining the church. And or some of them are going to be joining the church in the future. And so we have this idea of, of that, listen, we need to show show brotherly love towards one another. We need to uplift one another and help one another out here. And this goes against this idea of looking out for number one in selfish living. Let me move on. This idea of tender heart or compassion here that he talks about here. He says that we have to have a tender heart. And again, for us men in the room, this may be something where we kind of like bristle at a little bit here. It's like, well, you know, guys aren't supposed to be tender hearted. Okay, that's not what we're supposed to be. But let me just tell you, that's just wrong thinking. We have to be compassionate. We have to be tenderhearted. You know how I know that? It's because Jesus was. 
Okay? We're told to, number one, commanded. But also, we have the example of Jesus here. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 talks about being tenderhearted and looking to Jesus as our example. But think about the earthly ministry of Jesus. Think about how that he was someone who showed compassion over and over again. In fact, he was moved with compassion, the Bible says, and that he was, had tears as he looked over Jerusalem, moved with compassion, he wept over them. He was compassionate towards those who were sick. He he was compassionate to the infirm. He was compassionate towards sinners. He was compassionate towards you and towards me. And so it's this idea of us that we shouldn't be tenderhearted, we shouldn't be compassionate. We need to eradicate that. And we need to embrace the fact that this is part of what a loving family looks like. So this goes against this idea of like, well, I don't want to show any weakness here. You know, the people that, that I look up to the most are the ones that have a tender heart. I have a tender heart towards what God is doing in people's lives. They have a tender heart of what people are going through. And that's what makes a strong family. That's what makes a family be able to help one another. Because if, if, we're, if, if we're a group of people here and we're not tenderhearted towards each other, are we going to be real with each other? Are we going to be honest with each other? No. If we're struggling with something, we're going to keep that bottled up. We're not going to reach out for help. If we don't get the sense that we're in a space, in a, in a community, in a church where people, can, can, uh, where people are, are tenderhearted and compassionate towards one another, we are definitely not going to admit any type of struggles that we have. And the only way we're going to be a healthy, thriving church is if we say, okay, I need help. I need help with this. And we, we've talked about this at the quarterly meeting. We talked about this. We talked about how the, we've seen God do some great things in people's lives, and he's going to continue to do things because of the compassion and tenderheartedness of the congregation. Then lastly, he talks about this as a humble mind here, as a humble mind. You have to understand that in, in the culture that Peter is writing here, humility was actually despised. It was looked down upon. It was seen as weakness. And so for Peter to say, you have to be humble, that would have been seen, seen as very countercultural. In many ways, many of these are, but particularly this idea of humility. It was this idea of, of in, in this culture that Peter was writing, it was, you put yourself first over. Always. And you say, well, that sounds a little bit like our culture. Yeah, it does. It does. But we need to be, we need to be countercultural. We've got to be a church that we are going to be of a humble mind. And we, because uh, God says he gives grace to the humble. God exalts the, the humble. And, uh, 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 and so this is, this is the way up really is down in God's economy is through humility. So all five of these, and we move through them quickly, and we could spend, you know, complete sermons on each one of these if we wanted to, but all five of these, they really reflect the grace, the love, and the compassion of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our example. Remember, that's in the context of this, because he starts this in chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. He talks about how we are to be sojourners and how we are to be strangers in this world, and then he gives in the middle of this the, the example of Jesus Christ, that we're to look to Jesus Christ as our example which colors all of these commands that he's giving here of how we're supposed to live here. 
And the way that Peter constructs this, you've heard me talk about this before. It's a pretty common way of construction. It's called a chiasm. In uh, New Testament writers, often we use this as a point of memory, but also a point of emphasis. And so if you look at the way this is written, it, it, it kind of looks like you have some parallel, okay? It's called chiasm because it comes from the Greek letter chi, which looks like our X, okay? And so you can kind of imagine an X, and this is the middle there, where brotherly love would be in the middle here. So you have your like-mindedness, and you have a humble mind. So there's a parallel, right? Then the mind. Then you have sympathy and compassion, which is more kind of feeling-based there. And so you have those as parallel. And then you have the middle one there. It's kind of all by itself as brotherly love. Now, why did Peter do this? Well, Peter did this because he was emphasizing, he's saying, you know, the whole point of this. Now, all of these are important here, of course, but these, this is the importance of brotherly love. This is his point of emphasis here, is that he wants the church, while they're going through trials, to be a church of brothers and sisters, a community that shows brotherly love towards one another. And that's what we need to be. We have to be a church that expresses love towards one another. We are called to show love towards one another. So here's the exercise, okay? Here's the awkward moment. Look around the room. So you don't have to look at me now. Look around the room. Turn around. It's okay. You can look at each other. This is like, oh, man, he's making us do this. This is weird. Okay. Okay. The people that you just saw are the people you're supposed to choose to love. Okay? All right? If we're part of a church together, we're part of a faith community together, we choose to love one another. You say, well, wait a minute here, Jeremy. You're talking about choosing to love. Isn't love a feeling? Well... Love is primarily a choice, okay? We choose to love each other. Now, we have feelings of love. It kind of gets a little uh, a nuance different there, but I'll tell you, love really is a choice. And one of the ways I know this, and there's many ways I think about this, and I, I won't digress into this, but one of the ways that I know this is that it's commanded. It's commanded. We, we have some control over this. If we didn't have some control over it, then we wouldn't be commanded to do it. And so the fact that God commands, he says, I want you to show brotherly love towards one another, that is something that we must do. So, okay, if you're part of this church, and this is one of the reasons why membership is so important, because it defines the relationship. I was asked a question last week in our new members class. They're taking, okay, what's the difference between, or like, you know, someone who just comes here all the time and a member, right? Okay, and that's a really good question. And one of the ways is that the relationship has really been defined. And so today we had two people that said, listen, I want the relationship to be formalized, okay? I want to be in this family in a formal, official capacity with no, like, like questions of, like, what does this look like or anything of like this? And so this is why we voted on it. This is why the members of the church said, okay, yes. So you were choosing by your vote to love Tom and Michelle. Now, one of them is a lot easier to love than the others, okay? All right? I'll let you figure out which one's the harder one, okay? All right? But let me just tell you here, okay, you have chosen to love these people by bringing them into membership, okay? And they have said, we want to love you and to the rest of the church. And some of us are a lot harder to love than others, right? And Tom's going, I'm looking at him, okay? All right. So the point is, is that this is a choice that God has called us to do. Now you say, Jeremy, why are you spending so much time in this? Because this is going to be how our church continues to grow in our health. And because even stronger is if we show love towards one another. 
I just encourage you to think through ways that we can show brotherly kindness and brotherly love towards each other. This is what Peter is expressing is most important here. Now, notice this, that the New Testament, Peter included here, he doesn't really emphasize building up society at large. That's not the point of the emphasis of the New Testament of how to make society better. Okay, not saying that that's not a good goal, but that's not the point. Rather, building up the church, the body of Christ, is the consistent theme in the Bible. Okay, Now, why is that? Well, that's not to say that there's no, we, we shouldn't have an interest in changing society, but the primary means of doing so is to strengthen the church. So the believers are fortified, so the believers are equipped and dispatched into the world with gospel intention and purpose, but yet they're fortified by the love that they have with their brother, brothers and sisters, and there's this common like-mindedness about the glory of God. So for instance, If there's going to be a politician who's going to be influential for good, that politician needs a church that would build them up so that they have the fortitude to stand against the current of evil. If a a judge wants to execute justice morally, he or she needs a community of believers that are investing in their spiritual health so that they can execute true and righteous justice. They need that support. Informed citizens need a steady stream of gospel truth and accountability with other believers to inform their conscience and so they, can vote, so they vote governed by biblical truth and not pragmatism. We need people speaking truth to each other, showing brotherly love to each other so that we can make this place better, our church better, and in the world better. So don't you see, it starts in the church. It's God's primary, primary means. This is what it means to be with each other, investing in each other's people's lives. Okay, first point was the longest, so I need to move on, but there's a lot in this text here. But what Peter's getting at here, he's getting at that we need to be a loving church here. But how? Well, partly he continues on that. So we're to bless instead of retaliating. So we're called to bless instead of retaliating. This is hard. This is hard. God's been bringing things into my life recently, my family's life recently, where I have really struggled with this text of Scripture here, okay? This is, this is a difficult one. This command goes for people in the family, but also for strangers outside the family. Of the, it says, do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessed. For to this you were called, that you may attain a blessing. And then he goes on and he quotes from the Old Testament here. That passage that he quotes there in verses uh, 10 through 12 is actually uh, Psalm 34. We see that section in Psalm 34. So if, if you want to read that psalm, you'll see kind of the background. And this is a psalm that Peter often actually leans on here. But the reason why he leans on this text, and I'm not going to go through and explain all the different points of that psalm, or at least the ones that he, uh, uh, he quotes there, but the reason why he does is he's informing his readers that he's not coming up with this out of the blue. This isn't something that he's just coming up with. He's actually reminding them this is something that Yahweh of the Old Testament, and he was writing primarily to a Jewish audience, most likely, is that they're saying that even the scriptures that you would have looked at and you would have leaned on, you would have, uh, uh, have upheld and your parents would have upheld, that's what this has said. God has always been about saying, vengeance is his, it's not ours. Do not repay evil for evil, but on the contrary, bless. 
Bless. So he leans on Psalm 34 to make his point there for it. And as I said, this is a consistent message of the Bible, is that we, we bless others, even those who oppose you. I will point out verse 11, where it says we are to seek peace and pursue it. I don't know when, but I wrote in my margin of the Bible there, and I encourage you to make little notes uh, in there, because I wrote in here, I don't know when, but uh, it was a little arrow pointing to the word pursue there, which is a command. I wrote this, chase what evades. Now, I don't know if that was a sermon I heard or if it was something that um, I thought of when I was reading the Bible. I'm not sure where that came from. But I will say it's true. It reminded me when I read it again is, yeah, we are to chase down what evades. Peace and harmony has a way of evading. But here he says uh, we are to pursue that. And when people are hurling insults, that peace is really, really at risk of being gone, right? And he says, bless instead. Now, this is not a passive-aggressive thing. This is not a, a, you know, Peter's not telling us to be passive-aggressive about this. You know what I mean by passive-aggressive. He's not telling us to do that. He's telling us to bless those who hurl insults at us. So uh, immediately our minds, uh, some of you are thinking this, okay, does this mean we've got to be pacifist? Does this mean we can't fight back? What, what, if, what if, you know, someone's like physically assaulting me, do I just sit there and take it? What, what, what is Peter saying here? I, I think the Bible always gives room for self-defense. I'll just say that. But what I will say that is um, most of us are not in situations where we truly need to worry about self-defense. We're, that's not most of our daily lives. We're not dealing with people who are, uh, are physically harming us and uh, it, it, that our, our personal safety is at risk. Now, some of you may be, and if you're in that situation, you kind of have those set of rules that you need to live by in that. Uh, think of you know, police officers and things like that. Okay? But most of us are not in that situation. Someone may be thinking, um, well, what about when people do things that are morally wrong? Do we just idly stand by and not say anything at all? If someone makes a morally wrong choice, do we just choose to bless them instead of calling them out on it? This text is primarily about personal insults and harm, and that's a theme that's going to continue on into chapter 4. And it's not really about opportunities to proclaim. Uh, well, it's not about... Uh, uh, um, it's not primarily talking about that, uh, calling out someone's sinfulness. That's what I'm saying here. It's talking about dealing with someone who's attacking us uh, in a verbal way, mainly. Still in those situations, though, we bless through prayers for those souls and not by hurling insults back or returning threats of harm. We stand for truth there. It says in verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? And what he's saying there is he's saying, again, most of us are not in a situation where if we do something good, someone is going to physically harm us. So most of the time that's not a situation, but he leaves room for that because persecution is coming. He says, but even if you should suffer, I'm in verse 14, for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So in those situations, we do stand for truth. But at the same time, our first response is not to get even. Our first response is not to hurl insult back. Our first response is not to show someone up or put them in their place. It's to seek to bless. This is hard. 
let, let me just be real. Where there's, I mean, there's plenty of places where I struggle with this, but one is um, uh, if you're um, dealing with someone in customer service, and <laughs> I heard someone respond to that. Okay, so I'm not the only one. Okay, and you're, and it's just you know top level incompetence. Okay. Okay, some of you know what I'm talking about. It's like it, what they're saying just doesn't make sense. And it, you know, it, it just, it's actual, it's just infuriating because it's like, come on, just, just do your job. It's not that difficult. It's not that big of a deal, okay? I struggle with this passage right here applying this of blessing instead of retaliating because you know, I, my wife, you all know, her first language is French, okay? Um, some of you think my first language is English. It's really not. It's sarcasm, okay? <laughs> okay? All right? I am fluent in sarcasm, okay? And let me tell you, when I get, you know, something like that on the phone, it is so easy for me to just be sarcastic, and I have to just work so hard on it. And there have been times uh, where I've had to apologize to the person who I've never been on the phone and say, listen, earlier, I, I was not right in that. Please forgive me. And like, yeah, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. I'm like, no, 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 it's not. So uh, the point is, is that it is so hard at times. So I understand, I feel right now, I tell you, I preach sermons I need to hear, okay? I feel the tension of this right now in this moment because right now, again, let me tell you, as a pastor, when you're preaching biblical truths, a lot of times, memories of how you violated that truth come into your head, okay? And so, and it's sad if it was even that day, okay? But the point is, is that we have to be people. If we're going to be a loving family, we're going to be a family who we're choosing to bless instead of retaliating. Why? Because that brings peace, that brings unity, that shows what we prioritize. And so some of you, if you have a disagreement with each other, instead of seeking to get even, you seek to bless. Now, that can mean in a lot of different ways. That can mean that you're praying for that person. That means that you try to make it easy as possible for that person to be restored. That you don't you know, demand a you know, super uh, uh, you know, complicated apology or something. You say, I, I choose to bless in this. There's a lot of different ways that we could apply this here, but I need to move on here. But I will say this, is that you will receive a blessing. That's the promise of this. I like uh, what Edmund Clowney said about this. He was a theologian pastor. He said, Christians are free from vindictiveness because they trust God's justice. But uh, uh, they are free for blessing because they know God's goodness. Okay? So it's God's justice that helps us so that we don't have to be vindictive. But it's God's goodness knowing that we can be free to bless. Because God has blessed us far more than we deserve. He's blessed us so much that who are we to withhold blessing from others? Who are we to demand that people always get what they deserve rather than blessing them? God has been good to us. Okay, last two points. Go quickly here. Uh, number three, uh, here's what we're called to do is we are not called to live in fear of others. It says that if you should suffer uh, for righteousness' sake, I'm in verse 14, have no fear of them nor be troubled. 
most of the time, as I said, we will not receive harm for doing good. We saw that in verse 13. But if we do suffer for righteousness', righteousness sake, we're told not to fear. Because uh, 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 Jesus has told us to see, he told us that, that, he says, don't be afraid of those who can hurt the body. He says, you be afraid of the one who can destroy the soul. He says that in Matthew chapter 10. And Peter was there. Peter was there when he heard Jesus say those things. And so no doubt that was in his mind when he's writing this to these group of Christians who are going through suffering, they're going through difficulty, and persecution is ramping up and it's going to get even worse. So understand this. He's saying, listen, no one can harm you beyond God's boundaries of grace. No one can do anything beyond what God has for you. And so that's that's something that we we don't have to fear people. They have no power. I think of the story of Job. Remember? Remember the story of Job? You know, Satan had no power over Job except what God allowed to have happen to him. Now, we can question all the details about that and everything, but the point is this. The point is, is that no one has power over you that is greater than God's power. You think of Joseph. Remember Joseph in Genesis chapter 50 when his brothers finally repent of their wicked sin against him, sell them into slavery, all this. Remember Joseph's response to that? He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You see, it's resting in God's power, his goodness, his, the fact that he's in control, all of these things so that we don't have to fear other people. We don't. So as we're going through suffering, as we're going through difficult times, we don't have to fear what other people may do to us. But instead, finally, we are called to reverence Christ's holiness. Reverence Christ's holiness. Now, some of you, uh, in verse 15, some translations will have sanctify the Lord God in your heart. I think that's a King James translation, which I memorized it many years ago in that translation. The ESV here has it, but in your hearts regard Christ as the Lord, or the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you. And so we are to reverence Christ's holiness. So all of this here that we're called to do, we're called to reverence the holiness of Christ because if we don't do that, then we're not going to be able to be that loving family. We're not going to, uh, uh, we are going to fear other people. We are going to want to get even with other people. We are not going to be sympathetic towards other people. We're not going to show brotherly love to one another. We're not going to be humble if we don't reverence Christ's holiness. If he isn't primary in our minds, in our lives and in our church. We are not going to be a church that is healthy. We are not going to be a church that is loving towards one another. We are not going to be a church that goes out into the world to preach the gospel to all all nations here if we don't reverence Christ as holy, as transcendent, as Lord over everything. He must be our Lord and Savior. He, as John the Baptist said, must increase. We must decrease. Amen? Amen? And so that's the key to all this is reverencing Christ's holiness here, which, interestingly enough, leads to hope here, okay? Because it says, if anyone asks for the hope that is in you. And so when we reverence the holiness of Christ, we see how great he is. We see how transcendent he is. We see his lordship over all things. We see how Hebrews chapter 1 says he is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. All of these types of things, when we see that about Christ and his holiness here, 
then that leads to this hope that we have, this steadfast hope. And remember, hope in the New Testament is not just a wishful thinking. It's a settled reality about something that just hasn't happened yet. This settled reality that Christ is coming back. This settled reality that he is king of kings and lord of lords and he will rule the world. And that he, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I can't wait for that day. That hope comes from reverencing Christ's holiness. That hope leads me to love you. That hope leads you to love me. That hope leads me to be patient with you and you to be patient with me. That hope leads towards humble uh, humility and thinking. That hope of Jesus and his lordship and his transcendence and his glory and his majesty makes it so that I don't need to get even. I don't need to hurl insults back. I can bless instead because my Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. So good. And that leads to this hope. But interestingly enough, it, what hope does is it leads to questions. Because people then think you're weird, okay? All right? People think, wait a minute here. How is it that in this situation you can have hope? How is it that this person's hurling insults at you and you're just saying, listen, come on. Let me, how, how can we help? Well, what's going on here? How can I, it sounds like you're having just a really bad day here. How can I make your day better? I mean, ha, ha, you know, that leads to questions. That person in the office, that when you see how you dealt with that coworker that way, he says, wait a minute, how is it that you can respond to some of those things? How is it that, that you didn't just, man, if that was me, I would have been in that person's face. I would have been yelling back. How is it that you were able to live that way? Well, then, you know, guess what? Reverencing Christ's holiness leads to hope, leaves the questions, which then leads to answers. Leads to answers. We get to give a defense then at that point. It says, be ready always to give a defense for anyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you. He says, do with gentleness, do with respect, with a good conscience. You see, we have this opportunity to give a defense. And a defense, and this is where we get our word apologetic from, Okay, this is, this is like we're saying, okay, here's the reason why I can have this hope. It's because of what Christ has done. And let me tell you that he is king. Let me tell you his holiness. Let me tell you why I believe he is God. Let me tell you why he is Lord in my life. Now, you may not have a conversation with those exact words, but those should be the bullet points, right? So when someone says to you, they say, so listen, why is it that you responded that way? Maybe you say something like, well, listen, because I did something really bad once, actually many times, and someone was really kind towards me. Can I tell you about that? You see, I sinned a lot, and God, in his love and his kindness, sent Jesus to die for my sins. You see, I have hope of eternal life, not because I'm any good, it's actually in spite of my sinfulness. You see, that's the reason. So why, how could I, if, if, if I have been blessed so much, how can I not be kind towards other people? Or maybe you do a different thing. Maybe, maybe you take a page out of Jesus' book and you tell a story. Remember Jesus when he says, okay, there's two people. One owed a little bit, one owed a lot. Remember this story? He tells the story about how the one who owed a lot was forgiven, and the one who owed, that, that owed just a little bit, that, that the one who, who, who uh, was just forgiven a, a ton demanded that he pay him back. He says, it's so, it seems so in, uh, unjust and unnatural. I've been forgiven far more than what this person has done. 
You see, again, you don't have to say it in those words. You don't have to have those scripts or anything, and I would encourage you not to have a script. But what I would encourage you to do is think through how you can share hope with other people. But it has to be rooted in who Christ is in your life. Because if it's not, then it's not going to be very helpful to that person here. So we are called to reverence Christ's holiness here. So be ready. So the question comes is, do you know what you believe and why you believe it? Do you know what you believe about Jesus Christ? If someone were to ask you, why do you think Jesus is Lord? What would you say to that person? If someone were to say, okay, you talk about the Bible, why should I believe the Bible? How would you answer that person? If you say, if someone were to say, listen, you, you, you say that the Bible's true, but, you know, or if someone were to say, why is Christianity any different than any of the other religions of this world? Aren't are we all just trying to get up to the, the same, we're all going up the same mountain, but just different paths? I mean, you talk to me about that. How would you answer that person? You say, well, I would give him your number, Jeremy, okay, all right? And I would say, you know, that's your person that God has put into your life to minister to. And so, but we're trying to equip you. We're trying to equip you for things. So that's the reason why we have biblical teaching. That's the reason why we have Sunday school. That's the reason why we have adult discipleship power. That's the reason why we tell you to get involved in a small group. That's the reason why we have a wander for the kids. That's the reason why we have right now media that's available to anyone in our church. And so if you don't have an account, you can get one. Just let me know. But there's a lot of good biblical content teaching on there. That's why you have access to podcasts and sermons and all sorts of things and books, good Christian books. We have no excuse not to be ready to give an account or to give a, a, a reason for the hope that is in us. So the question you have to ask yourselves as I bring this to a close is this. Do you truly have hope in you about Jesus Christ? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, I can't share this hope because I don't have it. Let me tell you, today's today. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible makes it very clear that we have one way of hope, and that is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. There's no other way that we can have hope in this world. Trust in his sovereignty. Trust in his goodness. Trust in his glory. Trust in his majesty. Today's the day. Some of you just need to ask God to save you from your sins and follow him completely and say, you are my king, and whatever you want goes. Some of you just need to make that, you need to, you need to cross that line. Some of you, you're dinking around with this way too long or thinking about this way too long. Let me just tell you today's the day, okay? You call it to God and God will save you from your sins. So if you don't have hope, you can't really share it. But maybe some of you do have hope. Do you know how to share that? Don't make it more complicated than what it needs to be. Just tell them about the person who you love. Tell them what they've done. For, tell them what Jesus has done for you. And, um, and you'll see that God, God works through that. This is the hope that we need to share here. So as I, as I summarize what we said earlier today, we are called to live uh, as a loving family who blesses instead of retaliates, not in fear of others, but in reverence for Christ's holiness. So think about how this church has invested in you and in your spiritual walk. Think about how you invest in others as well.